This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today we'll be talking with the fiction writer Talia Lakshmi Kaluri. Um, her new collection just came out of about nine short stories called What We Fed to the Manticore. Each of these nine short stories uh, is somewhat unusual in that each is narrated from the first-person perspective of a non-human animal. So, a couple dogs, a polar bear, a vulture, um, you're familiar with animals. Um, so, yeah, and they're really interesting in how they get into the, the brain of these animals, and we talk to how, you know, how she sought to find what their worlds were like, the sort of sensory perception they had, um, whether and how they communicated with humans, whether and how they interacted with the human world, um, you know, the, the purpose they found and the meaning they imbued in their lives, um, and stuff like that. And then toward the end, she also reads an excerpt from one of the stories, which is very exciting. Um, so I hope you enjoy this interview and this reading um, from Talia Kaluri. Before we get started, um, just a couple quick notes. I... Uh, I want to announce what I'm calling uh, the 30 by 40 uh, initiative for storytelling animals. Uh, that is sort of a tongue-in-cheek allusion to 30 by 30, which is this idea that we should protect 30% of the Earth's lands and waters by 2030. But it has nothing to do with 30 by 30. It's uh, about my podcast. Um, so as some of you know, uh, this podcast is sustained by Patreon subscribers uh, who... Give a, a small monthly donation, as low as $4 a month, which works out to a dollar, maybe a little more per episode. I usually have three or four episodes per month. Um, and there are currently 22 people supporting me in this way. And we are on episode 32. Um, so my hope is that by episode 40, which should be around the end of the year, uh, I will be have 30 monthly subscribers. So... 22 subscribers in episode 32. We're going to try to get to 30 subscribers by episode 40. This is not just, uh, you know, so I can make a little more money, um, but it's also going to sort of help me decide what the future of the podcast is going to be. Uh, I plan to take kind of a, a, a break in maybe end of January, early February, um, which will mark the one-year anniversary of this podcast. Um, and so we'll call that kind of the end of season one. Um, and basically, you know, whether I'm able to make, uh, you know, some income through Patreon by that point is, is going to help me figure out, you know, how long a break do I take when it comes back? Am I still doing episodes every week? Am I doing episodes less often? Um, you know, do I get a lot of new subscribers? Do I invest in new equipment for season two or, you know, hire a transcriber fact checker or something? Um, yeah. So basically, uh, if I can hit that 30 by 40 goal, um, that will sort of help ensure that there is a season two at all. Um, so, yes, if you enjoy this episode or if you enjoy others, please consider uh, just, you know, clicking the link that's in the episode description. It's patreon.com slash storytellingpod. And just considering, a, you know, a small monthly donation to help keep this podcast going if you enjoy it and you want to see it last um, past early next year. Um, on that note, uh, thank you so much to those who are already supporting this podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who's listening and shared with anyone or just enjoyed it on their lonesome. Um, you know, whatever happens with season two, I'm really happy with and excited by season one and the support I'm already receiving. 
Uh, and one of the things that makes me happy and excited about it is I get to talk to really interesting people like Talia Kaluri. Um, so here's that interview without further ado. Uh, Talia, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too. So um, it's a collection of nine short stories, and all of them are narrated by non-human animals, from tigers to dogs to a pigeon. Uh, So which of these did you start writing first? Yeah, I started, the oldest story in this collection is The Hunted, The Haunted, The Hungry, The Tame, which um, is narrated from the perspective of sled dogs. And I wrote that one um, just over a decade ago. Yeah, that's the oldest one. Although it was in a different, um, it's been revised since I first wrote it, but it was, uh, that's the beginning of the collection. Mm -hmm. And then at what point did you know that you had a whole collection all with animal narrators on your hands? Uh, probably about the second or third story I knew I was writing one. And, okay. um, and and I will say, actually, I could keep going with these stories for an unlimited period of time <laughs> at this point. Um, so I have a, a quantity that works for a collection now, but the work is really still ongoing for me. So, so let's back up then to, had you always been interested in writing about animals or? So I've always been interested in animals and, you know, I'm sure a lot of writers have told you that they, um, they wrote even as children. And so as a kid, I did a lot of really, you know, funky narration stuff. I I think in like elementary school, I did write a dog related story and I, you know, I, I would experiment with different, um, narrative styles as a child. Um, as, as an adult, when I started taking my writing seriously, I didn't start with the animal perspective. I originally started writing, you know, human stories like so many writers do, and it didn't really feel very, um, authentic to me. And it didn't really feel like I was able to be uninhibited in that writing. So when I I found my way to um, starting with animal narrators, it was actually with a different story that predates this collection, and I liked it. And so um, when I decided to write The Hunted, The Haunted, The Hungry, The Tame, and and take that animal narration very seriously, it just felt right. Um, And so I would say... Once I I reached a point where I was really committing to writing a book and um, honing my craft and developing my own voice, it was through using animal narrators. Cool. So what's this is something that um, you know the the title of the podcast is storytelling animals. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we talk about sometimes is other animals and their stories, and had a couple episodes um, that have in different ways discussed the sort of diversity of ways in which non-human voices are are presented in fiction um Mm -hmm. we're kind of on one end of the spectrum as i see it anyway and you probably have more developed thoughts on this than me is actually writing them but on one of the spectrum is you know you get other animals that seem to like think and talk pretty much like humans um yeah who just happen to be you know furry or feathered or what have you um and then maybe on the other end you see kind of more faithful attempts to represent the actual internal life of 
whether it's a chimpanzee or a dingo or, or whatever. And, um, and, you know, this maybe can be strange because, uh, we don't know exactly what those other internal lives are like. Um, Mm -hmm. and I see your stories as somewhere, uh, not exactly either of those, these two for the most part. Um, for instance, most of them, you know, yes, they, they can talk in English, but in some stories, humans can understand them and some stories humans can't. Uh, and then they, they retain aspects of their animality, like, in, in way, the story about whales, there's a network of songs that connects them and conveys information that's obviously, you know, foreign and different from how a human would experience the world. And another with a pigeon who follows homing lines that um, obviously are something that we can't see. So you, you do try to get into the animal world in a way that I think is really exciting. Um, so you talk about this in the author's notebook. Sort of how did you sort of approach how animal to make your animals? Yeah, that's such a great question because, um, and I, I don't know that I can articulate a clear method except mm-hmm. that I, I used sort of an intuitive sense, um, partly in service of the story. And also I was kind of thinking of it through the lens of, um, how connected the narrating animal is to a human society. And I used that as a guidepost for how well they would understand a human, um, communication system or human behavior or a human world. So, and that's sort of a soft spectrum in the sense that it wasn't, there weren't hard rules, but I intuitively found my way to a scenario where, for example, the donkey is able to directly communicate with Hafiz back and forth um, because they have a close relationship and they're interdependent. Um, And then the pigeon story at the end, the pigeon can understand Toy Man, but Toy Man cannot understand the pigeon because they don't have that same partnership, but they Mm -hmm. still have proximity. And then you go all the way back to something like um, a polar bear who has no contact with humans and so no interaction. And And I was... As I was writing these, um, I wanted them to be comprehensible to a reader without feeling excessively human because I I didn't want to write human lives with animal characters. I wanted to make stories about animal lives that a human could imagine themselves living. And I think that that's a really fine balance um, because if I wrote too far into um, making it is very animalistic world. Sometimes it would feel alienating as a reader. And I imagined that readers might have a hard time kind of like suspending themselves inside the dream Mm -hmm. um, and believing that they were the animal they were reading about. So it was really about um, how did the story feel as I was writing it? So one of my favorite lines in maybe in the book uh, but in uh, my favorite story, which was May God Forever Bless the Rhino Keepers, mm-hmm. which is about this this dog who um, is protecting rhinos from, from poachers. So the, this narrator is a hound who's describing his morning routine, and he's just listing all the things he does. There's one sentence he, at the very beginning he says, sometimes I pass the time licking his bedposts. <laughs> And, you know, it's a small thing, obviously, but I love that, like, he doesn't explain why he does this or, you know, it's not like I licked the bedpost to taste what was the, you know, it's just like, oh, and this is a, you know, this is a, you know, viable way to pass one's time. Um, (laughs) 
And because one of my favorite things about being around other animals or watching, you know, documentaries about them or, or what have you is, is just like, they go on all these little missions or pursue activities that clearly mean something to them or they're getting something out of it, but they just seem inscrutable to me often. <laughs> um, this is true. And I, I love what, what that implies about, um, yeah, just kind of like the fullness of their worlds, uh, but in a way that expands my own. So, and I know some of these questions, you know, when you're writing fiction, there's not like a clear answer of here's like the scientific process I use to develop my narrative voice. <laughs> but, you know, with with stuff like that or like with the, um, you know, the whale songs or the pigeon homing lines that I mentioned earlier, like clearly you did some research too in, into these creatures. So how did you kind of go about getting into their head and finding out the worlds of another animal? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I'm living in a very fortunate time where there's a ton of wonderful literature out there about animal behavior that's accessible to non-scientists. So I found um, all kinds of wonderful books and articles that would, that would t teach me in a in a language that I could understand in a very kind of non-technical way how animals move through the spaces they're living in. Um, there's a lot of great stuff out there these days about avian navigation. And um, it's actually a great book that came out recently about whale songs. Um, I'm unfortunately not remembering the title as we're sitting here, but there's um there's just a lot of great literature out there that I could use to just learn about their behavior, learn about how they um move through the world and I use that kind of as like a framework within which to place my stories and then I just sort of like experimented. Um you know, there the homing lines I thought was a really fun way to learn about pigeon navigation and and I didn't really know that they're so exceptional at finding their way, but they are. And it was so interesting. And so I kind of thought about um, how I could describe that for a human reader in a way that would feel both familiar and new. And I, and I used a technique kind of in a couple of different directions. Several, several years ago, I took a workshop with Anthony Doris, wonderful teacher, wonderful writer. And he talked to me about this idea of defamiliarization, which is you take something like if, and I, at the time I'd taken a, a, a dog narrated story to his workshop. And, and he was talking about how you take something that is known to you, the writer, um, but is not known to your character. And so you describe it in a way that is new um, without making it so like precious or technical that the reader can't recognize it or you get sort of tangled up in these excessive descriptions. So I used that when I was describing um, part, parts of the human world that an animal would encounter. But I also kind of started reversing that a little bit when I was describing um, uh, animal experiences for a human reader. And I in a sense, I tried to re-familiarize those things for the reader. So the homing lines, we don't use those, but I wanted them to feel like they were a known feature of the world. And so the colors um, that I imposed on them, if I'm remembering correctly, there are there's some potential ultraviolet stuff happening there, although I'll have to look it up again. But I, I tried to make it something that we could imagine was present in the sky if you're flying. Um for those who haven't read the collection, it's I picked colors for different destinations and birds use those to navigate. Um, 
but it's sort of techniques like that, trying to find ways to make um, make something recognizable to a reader. So maybe on a related note, uh, in in that Rhino Keeper story that I mentioned, there's also this chimpanzee who seems to have some sort of religion uh, mm-hmm. where they have certain rituals and, and prayers that they do. And at the end of the book, you have some links uh, for each story with different articles that provided relevant inspiration or or provide more information about the minds of different animals. Um, and one of those articles raises this question of, is there some sort of spirituality among chimpanzees? Um, yeah. And maybe, yeah, maybe just start by telling us a bit about that. Well, I, I found that to be a really interesting concept, the idea of, um, of spirituality or a creation of some structured um, belief system for animals. And I, I thought of it in the context of animal consciousness and what we do and do not choose to appreciate about um, non-human creatures in our modern society. And I know that we often talk about things like humanity as this inarticulable special something that belongs to us, the hominid. And um, I don't even know if I'm using that word correctly, the people. Um, This sort of like, ah, we've got this elevated intellect. We have this perception that is special. We have this ability to frame the world and therefore we're different and in some people's beliefs perhaps better or superior to the rest of the animal world. But I think that that is um, a little bit um, of a blind spot because we don't really know how they perceive the world around them. And um, I think it's perhaps not, um, I think it's not giving animals and fish and birds and even plants like enough credit for the complexity of them as creatures and thus the complexity of their, um, their inner worlds. Because if I do things and I seek to impose meaning on them and societies seek to impose meaning on the things that they do and things like spirituality or religion may arise out of that. Um, I, I think it's possible that other creatures are doing the same thing that when they move through the world and they recognize patterns, um, that they will impose meaning upon those too. And I think that, um, you know, grief rituals that animals engage in or mourning rituals or death rituals maybe is a more um, objective way of describing it. To me, that's an indication that there's something um, sort of, uh, there's something intangible that they feel and observe when a member of their community dies that would um that would lead them to have you know uh, feelings about it and theories about what it means and even rituals built around it so i liked that idea and um and i wanted to kind of uh, suggest something more about it yeah and i i think you know i started the question with the chimpanzees but there are ways in which you do that in all of the stories, you know, in some ways, all of the animals you portray are, are, are religious, maybe not in like a theistic sense, or they don't necessarily pray like the chimpanzee does, but they, they do have, seem to have some like deep spiritual purpose in the tasks of their daily life. Um, from like the sled dogs you mentioned in, in the first story you wrote for this collection have this almost like militaristic, or at least like, you know, shipboard culture of like, we follow the leader and we run. 
Um, yeah. And but it, it seems to like carry a lot of meaning for them and, and the vultures who who put a lot of meaning in in their task of watching over and consuming the dead. Um, in another story, it's about vultures. And yeah, I guess I think like this this idea that other creatures are also imbuing the world with meaning is and using that to guide their way is um, is is part of what uh, I think part of what I, I kind of led me to call my podcast storytelling animals. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I think yeah, it maybe gets at you know I I do probably the majority of the interviews on this podcast are with nonfiction authors, but why I like to include fiction um, is. Uh, well, it, yeah, is, is that I think it, it lets us get at different ways of, of seeing that in action. So, for instance, you, like I mentioned, you include at the end all these nonfiction articles about um, that cover, you know, why can't I just read about homing lines on Scientific American or read about chimpanzee spirituality, you know, in National Geographic? And, you know, isn't that enough? You know, why, why explore these ideas in fiction? I think that that can provide um like an emotional connection you know so i think that i mean i love reading science journalism i do and it's very exciting and so um i love to think of the world being this really expansive place that that the more i learn the more i realize i don't know um and i and i think maybe um I came to writing these stories because I I couldn't not write them. You know, if I read a story about the possibility of, of a chimpanzee having a spiritual practice, how could I how could I not see where that goes in my own imagination? Or, um, you know, it just it's it's too interesting to let go. And part of it too was that like once I would learn about these things, they would just kind of stick with me, and I would. I would think about them over and over and over again and a story would like generate itself and then I've got to get it out. I've got to like, you know, find some way to release that story out of me. And, and to me, I think that says that I find these ideas so compelling. Um, they create this like inertia and, and, um, and it's almost like they, uh, I want, I don't want to say they wrote themselves, but (laughs) it's almost like, um, I was compelled to write them. I just, I just had to explore these ideas. And, and that's to a certain extent, um, the way imagination works, right? Like you, it's just, you're receptive to a spark and you let yourself daydream. And, and if you, um, are not holding yourself back from things like that, from, from daydreaming, then, you know, the story will arise and there'll be so many different possibilities. And I think that maybe those are two sides of the same coin in terms of maintaining curiosity about the world. Like for some people, that means understanding all of the technical aspects of something and exploring all of the scientific avenues of inquiry. And for some people, that means um, letting those inquiries um, create a question in their mind and then exploring where the question leads them. So um, I think they're both important in helping uh, the rest of us, um, readers and community members and people who are just casually interested, they're all, all important in, in helping us remember our connection to the rest of the world. Um, so if you sit inside an air-conditioned building with fluorescent lighting in your cell phone, you know that right outside that door is probably a jasmine plant that has a bee on it or a hummingbird, and that thing is living a whole life alongside you. Yeah, so so many of the animals in these stories, perhaps all of them, um, have in some way been harmed by human activity, whether that's 
you know, directly or indirectly through, you know, a polar bear affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, uh, the narrators who end up interacting with individual humans tend to tend to like them or have at least one positive relationship. Uh, You know, even the tiger, who you might not think of as friendly per se, has a particular human that um, the tiger is fond of. Um, so was there, I think, you know, there's a version of this book where the animals carry a great deal of resentment and anger toward the humans they encounter, but that's not the one you wrote. And I, was that at any point, did you, you know, consider making some of the stories more antagonistic or is that just not the story you were trying to tell or sort of how did, yeah, how did that happen? Yeah, that, um, I, I didn't really decide to make them antagonistic and that was partly deliberate because, um, I think one of the challenges, particularly when you consider the climate crisis, is that for a great many people, um, and I'll just say the average person, um, lots of people love animals and lots of people care about the environment. And it's in many cases, the climate crisis is not tied to the actions of an individual. It's really the cumulative impact of the, the the actions of systems and societies and history, all sort of like um, adding up to this this very um, scary and dangerous and destructive pattern of of a warming climate and you know continuing extreme weather or or systemic things that that really damage our the world around us. But oftentimes a regular person who's just an individual living inside that society will not be on their own particularly damaging. And I wanted, I wanted to, to keep those things somewhat distinct because I think it's important to imagine, um, not just individual environments or individual countries as systems, but the the planet as a whole is an entire closed system and everything we do um, as a society impacts everywhere else. And I think I wanted, I wanted that ability for a person to feel that it was possible to be integrated and connected to the environment um, and to still recognize that because I do think that if individual people are able to feel that con- feel that connection then um, individual people can implement changes to the system on a larger scale but i do think that it can be a little bit more hopeless if the way the story is told is that it's not just systems that are damaging but every individual and i wanted readers to be able to feel a sense of possibility in both connection and in hope yeah that makes sense um yeah I saw an article you wrote recently where you list several different novels uh, with narrated by animal protagonists. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned, I've, I've talked about a couple of such novels on this podcast. I, I read a lot of books involving animals, um, but almost everything in your list I, I hadn't heard of. Uh, oh. <laughs> and which is great, which means I get to add a lot more to my list. Um, but that makes me... I guess excited to hear more. So, so I'm curious. What were were there any either on that list or elsewhere that were either important for you, either because they you know more specifically helped you write the book, or just in general that you happen to enjoy a lot or get a lot out of in this genre of and my uh, one of my past guests, Laura Jean McKay, calls called it fauna fiction, but 
animal fiction. Yeah, fauna fiction. I love that. Um, you know, the one that was not on the list because it's very, very popular um, and is a classic is Watership Down. I read that as a kid um, and I read it in like one very like intense weekend. Nice. And I remember loving it, loving it so much. And I recently reread it a couple of years ago and um, it's still a really beautiful book to me. And I think that was a pretty transformative text in the sense that it's not particularly cute um, and it's not particularly um, saccharine. And it honestly portrays how these rabbits like make it and how they build their society in the face of again, destruction to their their habitat through like these like country farms. And I remember feeling very um, galvanized by that as a child. So like as a kid, I tried to write my own version of Watership Down and it was like, I'm going to do this, but it's narrated by cats. And I got maybe like 15 pages in, which when you're like 11 or 12 years old is pretty far. Uh -huh. um, and I have not found it. I'm pretty sure it's terrible. <laughs> but, um, but I... I was really inspired by that idea of um, reframing our communities and our world from a different vantage point. So I loved the idea of seeing it through another creature's eyes. So that was very transformative to me. And then as an adult, you know, finding books like Memoirs of a Polar Bear, I, I can't recommend that one enough. It's incredible. Um, and the final third of that book to me was one of the most brilliant things I've ever read. And then um, Barbara Gowdy's The White Bone. I've been talking about that one a lot because it's it's just brilliant, the idea of um, elephant societies and elephant culture. Um, but also, you know, these books are not, um, they're not a presentation of a perfect world for the animals. They do speak to the honest threats that they face, um, but through their own eyes. And I just... I'm so happy to see like the field of literature just growing with non-human narrators. It's, um, it's exciting. It's exciting to be part of that. So you mentioned that, yeah, that it is exciting to see this flourishing of, of fiction with non-human voices. Yeah. Um, has that, you know, how has that been, you know, for, for you in terms of writing about, non-human animals in a literary fiction world that's probably mostly human stories, you know, are, have you seen that world change in recent years or are people, you know, have you got been, been full support the whole time and, and just kind of how, how does the rest of the literary world react to non-human stories? That's a great question. So I've been writing these for, uh, I, this collection I wrote over the course of like a decade. And that means that, you know, when I first started, I I personally wasn't necessarily as aware of um, the literature that was out there, contemporary literature that was out there with non-human narrators. And, and that doesn't mean that it wasn't there, but I hadn't personally found it yet. And so I felt a little bit like I was writing by myself. And that's okay. Um, I started going to the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, which is a wonderful, wonderful resource for for writers who are trying to get their bearings and would like to find their way into the literary community. It's a one-week workshop in Portland, and I had a wonderful time all four times that I went. And um, so when I f first went there, I, I brought like a human story. Um, and then the second, third, and fourth times I went, I brought animal narrated stories. And... 
I was able to find writing partners through that workshop, just a small number who were really encouraging about what I was doing and kind of understood the creative vision I had and would encourage me. And so for a while, it sort of felt like there were like nine people that were besides my spouse who were, who were interested and on board. And, um, I would write and I would trade with these writing partners and they would kind of help me refine the stories and I would send them out and I would gather these huge rejections, just long lists of rejections from magazines. And then every couple of years, someone would say yes. And they would be like, I'm into this and they would publish it. And so there were, you know, four literary magazines that published stories from this collection before I sold it. And um, I was just really fortunate to find editors who were just willing to take a risk on something that maybe was unconventional compared to what they normally publish. Um, And that gave me like a little jolt of confidence. And then when I connected with Tin House, I actually... um, heard from Elizabeth DeMeo, my editor, who's fantastic. And she reached out to me after one of the stories was published in a journal. And she said, do you have a whole book? And I said, well, (laughs) most of a book. So, um, she read it and decided that they were interested. And, um, I very quickly had to find an agent who also is just, um, her name's Carrie. She's wonderful. Was very on board with what I was trying to make. So once I, once I found my way, um, to publishing my book with Tin House, I really felt like, um, my agent, my editor, everyone at Tin House was understood what I was trying to say and what I was trying to do and, um, have been real advocates for, for this work. I, I felt like, um, the time was right and it just sort of felt like, oh, it's become, it's become time for these stories. People are ready to read them. And, um, and it was helpful that I was patient, um, and that I was willing to wait for it to feel like the right time. Um, because, you know, I don't know that it always was, and I don't know that maybe, um, 10, 15 years ago, people would have been as interested in, um, climate fiction, animal narrated fiction, that sort of thing. But I think that, um, the interest has arisen. Part of it is because, um, I think that the climate crisis is just so much more apparent and that's, that's kind of been bittersweet because, um, in a perfect world, we would not be looking at lots of different extinctions of all of the interesting creatures we share our world with, we would not be facing extreme weather. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of the flooding that has been happening, fires and, you know, extreme weather patterns. I, um, in a perfect world, maybe these stories wouldn't be that relevant because we would have been caring for our environment a little bit better. But, um, so it's it's bittersweet in that sense but i but i feel like now that it is um the right time for these stories i've felt like very supported in all of the people that have been helping me launch this book into the world so that has been that's been really wonderful you know i i know that some writers experience a situation where maybe their literature is shaped in a way that is not consistent with their vision and and they have to write away from what they wanted to do but that was not my experience at all it has been um i felt very um 
free to be creative and I've felt that there's been a lot of room made for me to just explore how I want to write. I had a great experience with Orion Magazine, actually. I wrote an original short story for them and um, their editor-in-chief, Sumanth, was um, working with me and he said, just, you know, I want to see what you want to do and we'll do it and let's just like, let's see where your imagination goes. And it was such a liberating experience because, you know, I I was given the opportunity to just try something and um, space was made for that. So I've, I've really felt very supportive. Um, since I sold the book, um, other magazines have have published stories from it. So I had a piece in a magazine called Five Dials in the UK and one story published um, one of these uh, stories from the collection. So it's, it's been uh, tremendously encouraging um, to find myself with a book out at this point. It's, it's really, uh, I feel really super lucky actually. Yeah. You said the, the project's not over. What's, what's next? Yeah, so I start, started writing a novel. This is everybody at some point finds their way to a novel, I think. Um, and I, I'm working my way through a first draft, and I'll see um, where it ends up. But it covers similar territory in the sense that it's animal oriented, natural world oriented, and I kind of want to explore um, the concept of captive animals and zoos and that sort of thing. Um, and then I'll probably keep writing stories like this. We'll see. Maybe I'll have another collection sometime in the future. Cool. Is there anything else on any of this you want to add? Um, no, I think I covered that. All right. Well, we we have time for a, an excerpt if you're still interested. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm up for it. Do you have a story in particular you'd like to hear, or can I just can I just decide? I I say author's decision. Okay. All right. I'm going to read the opening of the last story in the collection. It's called Let Your Body Meet the Ground. For readers out there, this is narrated by a pigeon. Okay. Let's do this. The way it was before, after night rest, on the edge of the roof of the tea stall, the sun would flood the sky with colors, and I would begin to calibrate my sun compass. As the dawn light brightened into day, it would filter down into the streets and alleys of the market in Chandanichauk like ink spreading in water. And from my home roost at the tea stall, lines would run out over the city showing me all the places I could fly to. I would take to the air and fly over and around old and new Delhi watching the lines change color to show me where I was going. Orange for my home roost, pink for the roosts of my friends, Yellow for the cricket stadium, where we would go to gather discarded food from crowds. Green to the water fountains, blue to the metro stations. Violet, leading to the forest on the other side of the river. Among all the tangled threads of my homing lines sat a tall red building with a courtyard, right next to the Lal Mandir. It is the Charity Birds Hospital. It had been a place I'd only skimmed over when I flew around the city. My homing lines never led me to stop there, and instead flowed over and around the edges of the modest, dusty red towers and the crimson, rectangular building with a cage on top that rose up over a courtyard next door. The lines were usually muted, the color of charcoal or ash, and I never stopped there. I never stopped there until I had no choice but to be there. It was where I met Toy Man. Did you know that during the kite festival, some kite flyers coat their thread in glass? 
Did you know that when the kite is high, the threads can sometimes curve and bend with the grace of a flowing river? Did you know that when the glass catches the light, the thread can glow like homing lines? I did not know these things until I had no choice but to know these things. What I mean to say is that during the kite festival, I followed a silver pink line that ascended in a soaring crescent and at its apex was a demon with enormous fierce eyes, wings spread to fill the whole sky and a mouth open to devour me. I froze, unable to propel myself anymore with my wings and I tumbled backward into the thread, which was not a homing line at all, but was a burning knife that swiftly passed my feathers to lay its malleable blade on my skin. I fell, and as I tumbled down, the thread bent itself around my wing, burning deeper still. I tried to fly away, and it gripped me like a snake coiling around me. I looked up and saw that I was pulling the demon down with me. The demon's wings collapsed as the loft of the air gave way, and we began a rapid descent together. I felt helpless, powerless as the sky spun around me, unfamiliar and disorienting. At some point in our fall, the demon overtook me and it landed in the branches of a bush first, and then I came after, the plant and the demon keeping my body from the ground. I thought at first the demon would take me away forever, and so I kept my eyes closed, waiting. Waiting for the pain in my wing to expand or subside and for whatever was next to come, but nothing happened. I opened my eyes and realized I wasn't in the embrace of a demon after all. It was the paper and frame of a kite. I looked around and couldn't see any birds I recognized near me. People rushed by on the street, brushing past the bush as though I wasn't there. I turned my head back and forth, trying to catch the attention of someone, anyone. But I was alone. My wing was bound by the glass string and felt as if it was in flames. I looked up and opened my mouth to try to call out, but no sound would come. I saw the homing lines far above me glowing and lighting the way to all the places I could call home, and I couldn't rise to meet any of them. Do you know what a bird is without any guidelines? A bird like that is lost to the world. A bird like that will die in the place she has landed. These are the kinds of thoughts I had as I sat in the crumpled kite in the bush, unable to fly, bound to the earth with a burning thread, and closed my eyes to the sky. And I'll stop there. Thanks so much. Um, Thank yeah, you. I, I'm, I'm glad you picked that one. That was one of my favorites as well. And, oh, I'm so glad you liked it. Uh, yeah, I think also shows one of the other fun things about the collection, which is that it takes place all over the world, from the Arctic to Palestine to, I don't know, just every every new story is in a new place that was that was actually one of the fun things I, I loved about writing this collection was, um, you know, I haven't actually been to all of these places, but I'm curious about the whole world around me. So this was an opportunity to, you know, travel through my imagination to places that I might not. I mean, I'm, I don't know that I'll ever be able to go to the Arctic, um, but but I got to imagine myself there. So um, it's a way to make my world a little bigger. Cool. Well, uh, if you want to make your world a little bigger, uh, this book, this story collection is What We Fed to the Manticore by Talia Lakshmi Kaluri. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, if you are interested in more thoughts on this idea of representing non-human animals in 
literature. Um, I did a recent episode that was a review of T.C. Boyle's Talk to Me, parts of which are told from the perspective of a chimpanzee. Um, and one of my first interviews was with the novelist Laura Jean McKay, uh, who wrote a novel where um, a, a pandemic strikes where humans get a flu and the ability to um, understand animal communication. Both of those are hopefully interesting conversations on these topics, um, and I will include links to those in the episode description. All right, that's all. If you enjoyed this, please you know like, share, subscribe, send to a friend, send it on social media, um, sign up for my weekly newsletter. And as I said, um, most the, the best thing you could do to help out this podcast is just make that small monthly donation on Patreon. Um, help me reach that uh, 30 by 40 goal I mentioned at the outset. Um, but really the best thing you can do is just listen to next week's episode um, and keep plugging in. Appreciate you all and hope you have a good day. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com. Ah!